This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. On this episode of Don't At Me, we've got filmmaker and all-around artist Terrence Nance joining us. You have to think about what's intended with anything that you're watching, because that's going to get in you. You know, you got to watch what goes inside you, you know? I think that's really great advice. Um, we should do a part two. Well, maybe you're not high enough. I'm not high at all, but you know, we talk said that a couple of hours. We can have a real good conversation. <laughs> the filmmaker behind oversimplification of her beauty and HBO's random acts of flyness talks with me about the creative environment that gave birth to him, ancestral sources of inspiration, and creating unmolested work. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to get your tea and your indica ready because we are going deep, y'all. Stay tuned. What's up? I'm Justin Simeon. Welcome to Don't At Me, where we strive to have a nuanced conversation in a safe space for the people who are brave enough to make the culture of tomorrow. And my guest today, Terrence Nance, is one of the bravest artists that I fucking know. Um, He made a name for himself in 2012 at Sundance with his feature film debut, an oversimplification of her beauty. Fast forward and he's broken the mold yet again with an expectation shattering Peabody award winning HBO show titled Random Acts of Flyness. The show premiered in 2018. We're all anxiously awaiting the second season. He's a Guggenheim fellow, a musician, a filmmaker, an actor, a producer, and fellow Texan. What's up? What's up, Terrence? <laughs> what up? How you doing? <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. I love you because um, every time I watch something that you make, I get like really jealous, which is when I know <laughs> like, oh shit, someone's doing something. And I, I think like, my first question is like, where do you, like what planet do you come from, man? Like where, where did the spark start for you? Like what got you into this? You know, um, my mother's a actress and, you know, I was always like in a um, artistic household. My dad, he's a photographer, he shoots news. He walks around the house singing all the time. <laughs> so, you know, I had the raw materials just from my parents and just being in the community I was in, you know, my mother had this thing called the Afro. She was a part of a collective called the, um, I think it was called Afro-American Artists Alliance. Okay. And, you know, and then it, it was like the type of thing where like, you know, Julie Dash came through and they, they would sponsor that in 91 with Daughters of the Dust. And like wow. the theatric, the one theatrical screening would be through that. Or like, you know, when, when Sankofa came through, same thing or, 
or killer the sheep at the time you know i was you know i'm a little kid i don't really remember all that but i i've seen the programs i you know i i know i was there so i think it's like a lot of a lot of it just comes from that just you know lineage just kind of like from osmosis it's like in your blood yeah yeah what did when did you did you have like a an aha moment when you felt like because I know I, I know you do all kinds of art, but um, specifically for film, was there a moment? Was there a film? Was there a conversation? Like, what made you think like I want to make movies? Man, I don't think it was any given moment. I think there was a series of moments. Um, I remember um, just as a kid, my my dad brought home uh, two thousand one. I was like four. <laughs> I didn't know it was, I didn't know what it was, but you know, he's the type of person to put that movie on for a four-year-old. So did you enjoy that movie at four years old? I don't think, you know, it was even a matter of enjoyment or not enjoyment. I don't know how much of it I watched, but I do know that I thought that there was a subplot related to pumpkins. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I had made up a whole, uh, I made up a whole dynamic for what happened um, when, you know, he kind of gets sucked into deep space alone. Okay. Yeah, and, the interstellar thing at the end. Yeah, and in my mind, at four, he lived forever. Like, he floated out there forever. And I only know that that happened because when I rewatched the movie, like, for the first time as an adult in my, like, early 20s, I remember being really surprised that there was no pumpkins in the movie. <laughs> And that he didn't <laughs> float out there forever. As we so, can see, no pumpkins. Yeah, there was see. no pumpkins in the movie that we could see exactly. I think it was because, honestly, now, now I'm really thinking about it. I think when at the beginning when he's beating the, uh, the oh yeah, I thought he was hitting a pumpkin. Or I think I didn't want to process the violence, so I was just like, it's beating, he's hitting a pumpkin. It's obviously. But, a but yeah, I think it was that. I remember when I was like 19. Me and uh, actually Jatavia took me to see uh, Itumama Tambien in the theater. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being like, you can do, oh, a movie can be this. Like, I didn't, I just didn't, I knew that, but I didn't, you know, in my kind of like teenage mind or whatever. And she was like on that at the time. Like, she was like, I was like, you know, I played football in college. I was like kind of on art stuff a bit. I was doing it, but I wasn't aware and she was just steeped in the whole independent film situation like she knew everything at the time and so she was like yo you haven't seen that I was like no i no i've never i don't even know where you would go see it <laughs> you know what i mean and so i remember i remember you know she was like we i don't know i don't know if it was her first time seeing it too but she wanted to see it and i remember we watched it and i was just like oh okay you can do some things. And I, it wasn't a conscious thought, but I think I look back to that moment in life and just like know that, you know, you have to kind of see that some things are possible and feel that they're possible before you can do them yourself. Absolutely. I mean, Kubrick kind of did that for me. I hated 2001 Space Odyssey. I tried to watch it a lot because I felt like I was supposed to like it. And I really hated that movie until college. And I took a um, philosophy class. And uh, at the end of the class, I just played the movie without explaining why. And I realized, uh, for, then I, I love the movie, it's my favorite movie of all time now. But um, 
at the time it was just like a light bulb went off because I was like, oh, he's saying all of this stuff, but without really dialogue. He's saying it with visuals purely. He's saying really complicated shit with just cinema. And um, I had that feeling on that movie and that feeling on Do the Right Thing too, where it's like, oh, we can do this and be black? Okay, cool. Um, and that sounds like that's what that was for you. But I know for me, it's very scary <laughs> because, uh, you know, to me, you're an artist that really breaks ground with everything that you make. Um, specifically, I have to tell you, when I saw the first episode of uh, Random Acts of Flyness, I got to the John Hamm sketch. Uh, is it White Tears? What was the name of it? Oh, that's a good title. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> it was White uh, Something. It was White Thoughts, Black Thoughts. White Thoughts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you suffer from White Thoughts? White Thoughts are a symptom of an aggressive disease called acute viral perceptive albinitis. Violence isn't the answer. Also known as whiteness. I literally paused that and exited my home <laughs> and came back in. I'm not kidding. I left my house, came back in and, and when I was ready and I pressed play again because it was like the audacity of you to position whiteness as um, a disease. It's just so brilliant and bold. And I, I see the ripple effects of the things that you do in your work and other things. You know, um, and I just I think it's really brave to really always be trying to break ground. Is is that like a key ingredient for you when you're doing something? You know, I, I don't think so. I think that like um, I'm not so often thinking about precedent, you know, or freaking people out like, oh, you ain't never seen much like this before. Like I'm not that's not happening for me usually, but I do, I acknowledge that that can be the effect for sure. Um, but, you know, I think that there is a lot of the process, which is like a spiritual mm. janitorial thing, you know, where you're like trying to just clean some shit up, you know mm. what I mean? It makes sense of certain things. And I think that, you know, I was trying to make sense in that situation of like the utility of whiteness um, who wrote that book? White, uh, I think it's Neil, Neil, pa Neil Painter. Neil Painter. I forget the author's name, but um, I read some of that, um, and I, you know, I think it was probably around the whole Trump um, campaign. And I, I think I was trying to make sense of, you know, and clean spiritually what my relationship to. Uh, white supremacy was and how it manifested as a, as, as a as resistance to things that I do on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. I think in trying to make sense of it, it just comes out how it comes out. Like, I don't think it has any. And I think that, you know, for just looking at your work, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like dear white people, even just in the title, like an address, the, 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 the satirism in the title and that the positionality and the tonality of it as a work is a, I process it as like your cleaning process, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. in dealing with, so I think we are all doing these processes of like cleaning, cleaning, you know, and, and maintenance cleaning, not cleaning for good, but just like today, you know what I yeah. mean? 
that's that's how I think it comes out. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because it's a, a person's individual, you know, process of maintenance. You know. Yeah. Well, I think like you know, I feel like people are either intentionally using art to clean out their shit, or they're telling on themselves unintentionally. So. <laughs> my mantra is to just do it on purpose is, you know, when you sit down to work on something, um, like what is, what's the first thought, you know, like some people are like, God, I want, I want a multi-million dollar deal or I want to make a movie like that. Or I want to do a show like, you know, people have different intentions when they sit down to do the work. Like more often than not, like what gets you to sit down? Like what's the, what's the inspiration usually inspiration point for you? It's, it's, it's a lot of, I think it's usually not super conscious, whatever it is initially, you know, usually just something happens. I feel something and I don't think it's always me. Um, I think it's a lot of times coming through ancestrally or from other beings um, just coming through me. And I don't have too much of a desire to identify the source point, um, name it. But at some point, when I have to explain it to someone else or other people, that always happens. You know, I have to make up a lie about how I might connect to my own personal story. And I think I say lie in like a total immoral sense, but like you have to make up a, a narrative by which a person whose kind of cosmology of being is different than you mm. can, can access what you're saying as like a quote unquote product or a quote unquote. Um, movie or whatever it is. Um, but I think most often, you know, it's just a channel. You just, I'm just a channel through which things move, even if I don't want to be sometimes, but you know, that's, that's the long and short of it. So I don't have like a super intentional, um, process of initiating and creating intention. Um, but I think broadly it's really important for me to, for any, anything I'm doing, whether it's cleaning up the house, cutting my nails or, you know, sleeping to, to, to be in line and in a continuum of healing actions for myself and whoever's around. And I think that that's like really important, you know, as a macro kind of like a general space because, yeah. you know, especially when we make movies, you know, this shit can do harm, you know, at the end of the day, like, um, you know, moving images and sound coordinated with each other, flashing before your synapses can create harm and it can, it can uplift, it can, it can heal. And you just got to know it can do anything just like a hammer, you know, I would say a hammer can build a house or it can kill a person, you know, yeah. I think that knowing that means that there has to be kind of a macro intention. And for me, it's, it's healing myself and people around me. Do you read any young? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, we could have a good conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I should be trying to start reading the Red Book. Have you tr- tried to read that? The one no, where we, that they published, I, they should not have published because I think his kids published it after he died. Oh shit! It's like it's like a he wrote it all down in the during a psychosis or something. It doesn't. It's just like you know, just read it. It's it's wild. I can't remember. I don't. I mean, I think I got like this is a while ago. I don't think I got too deep into it, but. When when you said that, that was the last thing I, I tried to read. I read like I read a lot of his. Um, I don't know followers or interpreters or you know I haven't actually read like raw Jungian ideas, but one of the ones that I think is really interesting 
is the idea of the daemon or your sort of this internal genius that um, is with you from birth, that is always guiding you, or at least is trying to guide you into your life's uh, purpose. And when I think about the first time, when I think about like film and why film for me, I remember just always being obsessed with um, the visual image, you know, like I had like a little Disney projector thing that would just like flash like a, a scene from a Disney cartoon on the wall. And I would just stare at that. There's something so magical about it. Um, what, did you have that moment uh, as a kid? Uh, or was it, or was it just seeing E2 Mama TVN and, and sort of just finding your way to it? You know, I mean, I was in Dallas, you know what I mean? Like I was not, you know, I was, <laughs> I was in Houston a little, like as a kid, you know, I was, I grew up in, uh, you know, in the South and, and, um, going to church every day and like yeah it i i think that the, my series of moments are not related to filmmaking mm. direct i think that like i have an envy actually or part of me has an envy for that moment like that you had or you know the moment the, the moments that i feel like people talk about moments of clarity around being called to a thing i, I don't even necessarily feel now like i don't identify necessarily as anything other than Terrence, but it, as a quote unquote filmmaker in that way, yeah. I just make a bunch of shit, you know, but it's like, I do think that the nature of film as spectacle makes it, there's a lot of uh, eyes on it because it's, the medium is inherently engaging the concept of spectacle, even right. if, it, if you're just making something in your you know bedroom or whatever. Um, the formal qualities of it make it that way. But to answer your question, I think it's like my reference points, my moments, I think were happening more to my subconscious and they, they were set up before I was here. You know, it was like being at my mom's rehearsals, you know, um, being on the back of my dad's motorcycle, you know, things like that, you know, be, be, being with my uncles, they're, they're musicians and, you know, they would set up, you know, setting up my uncle's drums, watching him play um, in random little clubs every night, like mm-hmm. literally every night, seemingly. You know what I mean? And and I think that those, you know, in those stories, you get like, oh, I'm watching people act. I'm watching somebody direct people act, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm watching somebody make music. I'm watching somebody record music. I'm watching somebody perform, you know. And then, like at church, I was in the music. I mean, I was in the media uh, ministry, quote unquote, which all that means is like you film the, you film the uh, service, and you yeah. edit, like you know, the first time I learned how to edit was on like one of those linear real to real editors, video editors in church, you know, by by a guy, a cool guy named Arthur Porter, who like made his own leather goods. He's still <laughs> making his own leather goods. I'm pretty sure they're pretty they're pretty dope. But, you know, like those type of things, like, so I get editing from that, you know, like, mm. it's not like a thing. It's, I, I think I'm only more recently advocate for cinema because I, I understand it as a a mix of those things. But as a kid, it was just, they weren't connected. They were just, right. you know. I don't think you should envy that moment, by the way. I think you just described, you describe you kind of described that moment for me, at least just in you talking about it. Um, and I think what's so cool about what you do is that you you have a very singular perspective um, from your work. And I, I was introduced to you through your first movie, Oversimplification, which I saw in theaters, was completely wowed by it. And then, you know, stayed for a Q&A. And I just remember thinking, like, what, where did this come from? 
how did you arrive at that movie? Not not so much the like business of it, but like the artistry of it. Like what was what was going on for you with that? Um, you know, I said it many times where I was just trying to impress Namique at the end of the day. And she You're trying to impress who? Namique, the 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 uh actress oh. in the film. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she was not impressed that much, but I still had to finish the movie, so <laughs> I just did it. And I mean, that sounds funny, but that's really what it was. Like, especially initially, you know, or maybe it's like kind of what it was, but I needed, I needed a more high level pursuit to, to motivate myself to, to do something that feels insurmountable for most, for, for me at that time, which is like making a feature film. It felt insurmountable again, in like a subconscious way. I don't think, probably just felt insurmountable because I didn't know that it was a thing. Like when I started making it, I didn't know what director meant. Like I knew what there was a human being's name that played after UPM and assistant director. <laughs> yeah. Like I just, I didn't know what they did. So I put, I remember I put like created by Terrence on the, at the end of the credits and like, cause nobody told me, you know, I didn't know. Wow. Um, so I didn't have, my motivation was just very high level. Um, it was a social thing. You know, it's like, Everybody's first film was like a little love story type thing, a little heartbreak situation mm -hmm. in some ways. Yeah. Uh, or or that's a part of it. And I felt like um, when I started, I didn't think I wasn't making a feature film. You know, I was just making a, I thought it was going to be like five minutes. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was mo mostly that, like a social thing. And how would you describe the film to people? Uh, I think I maybe would call it like a black dope tone poem <laughs> Unlike anything you've seen before, I would use those kind of words to describe it. But how would you? How would you describe oversimplification of her beauty, which everyone should watch if you haven't seen it already? I would say maybe it's just um, me trying to grow up, failing, yeah. and failing at it. You know, <laughs> me trying to grow up and uh, being between um, self awareness and obliviousness, something like that. Is it difficult to try to like translate what you're doing to money people? You know, like in this, like if you're in the Hollywood system or if you're doing a TV show or, you know, something in Hollywood, um, is that like, is that like just a, an evil that you have to deal with or is that something you enjoy or what's your, what's your approach to that? I guess maybe under the question is, do I feel like, um, their space for what I'm making mm. um, is it are there resources for what I'm making at the the highest level and I think you know up until recently nobody really said no mm -hmm. uh, to me on the grounds of what the ideas are um, so I, I would say there is space I think when when I have encountered resistance it has been kind of after the yes in the process mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, after the yes to the money. And, you know, we can have a private conversation about all that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm not, you know, I know you're not, I know you're not, because you asked about the money, but you know, so I was just like, uh, but you know, the, uh, on the money, on the money side, you know, just trying to like, Hey, you know, I got this idea. Can I get X amount for that? You know, I, I haven't had too much experience doing that. Like very few times I've even actually done that and I've been successful. 
on the very few times I've done that. And I, I think that will continue. Um, but I, I think the, the main resistance that I'm, I'm, I've always worked through is the, after that, in the process of doing the thing, um, you know, the white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist, sure. hyper-capitalist sure. scarcity situation rears its ugly head and it either kills you or it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, if the question on the question too for me is like, I'm trying to deal, and for me, I get so discouraged when people don't get my shit. Like I get really down on myself. Uh, and especially when- yeah, like Audience or like the, we we mean my people? Both. Uh, audience, you know, if especially, you know, Dear White People, that was my first time. I, it, it seems really naive, but like, I always knew I liked difficult stuff like I, I like things that are challenging i knew i always wanted to make things that are challenging but um you know that for my first trip at sundance was was really crazy because just dealing with people who didn't get the film at the time and uh of all races and then to sort of hear five years later oh it was a darling of the festival but i didn't experience it like that at all um and i and i am you know there's a lot of things there's a lot of times when i'm watching your work specifically and i have the thought god damn i wish i had the courage to do something like that and i guess what i'm asking is like do you do you have any do you have to like fight any personal demons when you encounter people just not getting it or not ready for something that you're putting in front of them and that could be audiences. I just, want, I just want to pause and say though that you don't have a perspective like no one does but nobody can have like a clear perspective on on how quote unquote brave and when you say courage, I think the metric you really mean is like, does it feel unmiscegenated? Like, is it direct from say that word again, Terrence? <laughs> is, it, is it unmiscegenated? Like, has it been kind of unmolested by the power structures? Hey. You know, and so I would say that you your work feels unless about the power structures. You just made a movie about a sentient weave. So, <laughs> so there's that, but, but then also like, you know, there is that. <laughs> so it, but even on some like dear white people, you know, just like the, the fact that you have, uh, you know, a character from the South, black, black guy from the South going through a queer, awakening understanding within themselves in uh ivy league dynamic is a movie that has never existed mm-hmm. it's never existed so um on some level your personal courage or not is like immaterial i'm just talking about you because per- i know i knew you i think before you made the movie i think i met you maybe yeah before I made, you made it but you yeah. were you were in the process of making it and I remember, you know, it just didn't exist before. So whether or not, the only reason it happened is because you made it happen. You and Lena and all the people around you, you know, Stephanie, all the, y'all made it happen. And whatever, I just, I just want you to know that you are in doing that just by the nature of what it is. As I said, it has never, it does not exist. And it hasn't existed. Nobody's made another version of that in any kind of way. So the proof is in the pudding that like, it is red as brave, it is red as courageous because it's never happened before. And, you know, I think that similar to what you're saying about like your experience of your own thing, I, I knew early on that like people gonna react how they gonna react in all ways, like just to me as a human being, you know, like it doesn't, 
that I think that's something that's like definitely been a part of my childhood and life of like people having whatever reaction they're going to have is based on their experience of life and observing it and just having to keep it moving and not get wrapped up. And I saw so some I struggle with, something I failed at for sure, um, more than I succeeded at. But in the in the endeavor of making artwork, whatever it is, sharing it, you know, puts you in a place of quote unquote vulnerability that is a part of the endeavor. It's like never not gonna be. And it's part in that that place of vulnerability is also the gift of it, you know. It's just like processing allowed, you know, you you are allowed a forum. You you are afforded a forum to process a lot of stuff. Allowed person, you get you get feedback you ain't asked for. <laughs> you know what I mean, That's on your on what you're going through, you know. But but it but it's also you know that act of vulnerability. I've always seen for myself is like maybe maybe it's the maybe the compulsion is because I you know I need that or we need that you know. Yeah. Do you have like a support system around you or like you know where do you go to lick your wounds? You say you failed at it more than succeeded. Um, and sort of keeping it moving when you meet somebody's misinterpretation of you. How do you get back? <laughs> I mean, the most recent. <laughs> <laughs> speak on it. I want to know. I, I want you to bottle it also and send it to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I got the same sources. You got, you know, family and friends, community. Um, I think that yeah, like in making stuff, you know, you get to a point, people butt heads, it's not working out, whatever. Um, you know, you made st- mistakes that you can't rectify in the present. Um, all that stuff happens. I think that like, if and when I've been misunderstood, it's been in a in highly contentious environments where a lot is on the line for a lot of different people. And, you know, people people are who they are and, and, and you can't, you can't take it personal. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, um, not even put me up on that book, the new earth. And it's, um, come on, Eckhart. Eckhart. What do you say? He said, the ego is not personal. The pain, (laughs) you know, you gotta, you know, people having acting out of their pain body, which I think is means, you know, when you are misunderstood, when people putting stuff on you that you didn't say do, you know, Mm -hmm. or represent, artistically creatively emotionally whatever that's you know that's their pain talking it's not personal you know what i mean my pain body's name is cheryl cheryl yeah damn huh he gives it to me man gives it to you yeah i'm not a fan i was actually trying to come up with a name for mine but i was like man i should name i feel like i feel like mine's cheryl i don't know why um that's my aunt's name (laughs) this is this is a wonderful conversation I'm not really going to go on a break for everybody that's listening to me now, but I'm going to say that I am so I don't have to record it later and cut it in. So we will be right back (laughs) right after this break. And we're back. All right. So I'm going to take a question from our audience uh, to segue into the next portion of our conversation, sir. This one comes from Tiffany Black. Uh, she wants to know. You shout. You want to shout out to Tiffany? Tiff, what up? (laughs) What's that picture behind you? That's crazy. Is that a human being? Oh, okay. Zoom tricks. (laughs) Zoom tricks. I I always get fooled by this type of shit. 
So Tiffany wants to know, and I really like the way this question is worded, by the way. How did you pitch uh, Random Acts of Flyness? Did you lie and surprise them, or did they trust you totally? <laughs> well, uh, I... I, I don't remember pitching. I remember there was, so there was this moment. Just, I'm going to tell you what happened. Yeah. And th- it was part of, you know, Tamir Muhammad, amazing producer, executive producer of the show, had created uh, with Lisa Garza, who, who passed away recently, mm. um, a, uh, a program called 150. And they were developing lots of projects at Time Warner. And they, they held, you know, I had uh, made a few of the segments. Um, I had made about half the pilot and some of it actually preceded even that process. Um, just like just other things I made. And so I had some of that stuff to show. And so they had this forum where basically every, it was probably like 60 or 70 people. It was like a theater. Yeah. You know, all the development execs from different, um, networks were there and I got up and I just sort of went through like, you know, what it is, random acts of finest. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, the black subconscious visualized, you know, has a lot of different segments in it and it's stitched together in a way, stream of consciousness way, it's the way my mind works. Here's a few segments, mm. played them. And it wasn't a, con- it wasn't a pitch, I will say. It was just like, it was more like a, this is what is happening at 150, even though it was to garner interest. Yeah. I think the genius of it was how depressurized it felt. Mm. I think that was by design, you know, on Tamir's part. Right. And um, so it was just like that, right? And then really, you know, Tamir was the one going out talking to the individual people about the projects, not just my project, all the different projects that were a part of the program. So I don't know what he said. I mean, I, I really don't. He's never told me. <laughs> but I don't know what he said. So I can't speak to if he lied. <laughs> but I never said anything. And then, you know, he kind of just reported back like, okay, of the everybody in the room, these people want to explore working with you on a project on the project. So then I met with all those people, you know, I met, it, but it w- definitely wasn't a pitch environment. It was just like, they were asking questions. I was answering them honestly. Mm-hmm. There was no, I didn't come in under the expectation I had to present it. And I've been in pitches before, so I'd, I've done that. So I knew what that was, but this was not that. I just answered questions about what it was. Again, you have to understand half the pilot existed so they could just watch it. Like it wasn't, right, it wasn't right. a big question mark about what it was. There was some feeling that, I had to correct people's assumption that it had anything to do with like late night variety shows. Cause it's definitely not, it's just a narrative show. Mm-hmm. It's not even really a sketch show. It's just a show that's scripted and we make it. And I had to say like, Hey guys, I have no, I don't know anything about John Stewart or anything like that. Like I watched it sometimes, but it's, I don't know. It's not news. None, none like that. Yeah. And I remember that being like a thing that I would have to consistently correct. But other than that, that's those conversations happen. And then there were some emails to say you doing the pilot, which which place is the best deal, and then got to the deal, and then made the pilot. That was it. Like there was no. That that's what happened. So, I don't know how to. Um, when pe- people ask me a lot, like how did you frame it for people? I'm like, they kind of just watched it, you know. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no like special sauce to it at all, you know. And this was stuff that you were just making on your own. Yeah, so like, you know, if you watch the pilot, it, it wasn't just uh, my stuff. You know, if you watch the pilot, there's Worries 473, which I had made before. Um, there's Everybody Dies, which is a film by Notama Bodomo. Oh, 
God, I love that one. And, and she made that everybody before. Um, everybody dies. I had to leave my house again for that one. <laughs> you know, really and Nuatama worked on, co-wrote it with Mariama, who, who, um, who is also in the writer's room. Um, and so it was like, uh, it was a blackface, which I had made before. Um, the only thing that wasn't in there was White Thoughts because obviously we had no money to do anything like that. You know, so if you weren't hanging out with John Hamm, just like, what no. should we do today? Not at all. Yeah. So White Thoughts wasn't in there. And then like a version, there was like a, not a finished version of uh, sexual proclivities, but there was some kind of vibe of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they could see it, you know. That's dope. I have a question from Edgar, <laughs> who is a member of my writer's room on Dear White People. Um, and he has a question that I have, too. He says, how much freedom do you give uh, each creative involved in Random Acts? Is there a room? Do people submit pieces? How do you tell what fit, fits where? Um, in my experience, it's pretty free. Um, I don't, it's not, I don't see myself as like giving or taking any freedom. Like if they in there, they free, you know what I mean? But it's like, I definitely, I had a set of, you know, the pilot existed when I came in, but also everybody in the room is people I've known for, for a long time. You know, my brother's in the room, um, you know, no time I know from school, Darius know from school for years and years and years, worked on many, many things, different capacities together all these people who I have long-standing relationships are there. Um, so there isn't what I would assume exists in a normal writer's room, the sort of like hierarchy that is about, that just happens when you're in a sort of workplace environment um, mm-hmm. where people don't have as many long-standing relationships. Um, and I think that was, it was by design, but also, that was like the only way that the show could happen is if it was like a family affair in that way. Yeah. Um, but what I came in with is, you know, I had written um, with a set of guidelines that's, you know, where the, the last guideline was, I'm sure we will break these guidelines, like, but it was pretty extensive. I don't remember all of them. And, and part of it is I'm actually trying to unlearn those guidelines for mm. the next season so that it doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, but I had that and then I had, you know, we had the pilot and then I had some scripts that I'd already written, like just different segments that could go different places and some ideas. And, um, you know, we just talked about all that stuff for about three weeks and then that generated just lots of ideas. And I took those ideas alone for about three weeks while some of the other writers just iterated, like kind of just treatments or summaries of some mm-hmm. of the ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tried to form all the ideas into episode, like into a, sh- a show, you know what I mean? In that three weeks alone, while um, there was a little bit of kind of individual work. And then, you know, we had, I think only like four or five more weeks after that to actually just script it all. So like everything was basically the first draft, you know, that got shot. And um, I'm, I'm even surprised myself how much, how much the episodes look like the scripts. You know. Wow! Yeah, it's a it's a very impressive series. Um, I can't wait to see what you do next with it. What was like? I don't know. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite child? Favorite segment? 
I think the last six episodes my favorite episode, maybe. Yeah. Is there a specific segment in it? It's weird because I don't think of it as segments, you know, like because it, it wasn't really written that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it was at one point, like so early, but very quickly it became talking about the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I'm like trying to remember them as segments. It's very difficult to. <laughs> to I can't. I can't really. Rem- I, I like in my memory. I don't know the difference between episodes. Like when people ask me, "Oh, about that episode when this happened," I was like, "I I remember that happening in the fictional lives of these characters." But I don't remember the episode number. So. I feel you on that. What are you What are you watching right now? Like, what's What's getting you excited? That's out there. Um, quick shout out to Ceylon and Spades. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm going I'm going there too because um, <laughs> that's an amazing film. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I was lucky enough to be one of the executive producers on that, and you know, just watching Tyresha grow. Um, I remember she, she was actually. She helped out on oversimplification years and years ago. And um, you know, we stayed in touch. I remember she sent me the first first draft. It was it was two, it was a what I was excited about initially was it was a um it was like a franchise. I was like, it was two movies initially. And oh. I was like, yo, it should be a Sela cinematic universe in this motherfucker. <laughs> like it was okay. it had, it had that, so. before we get into it, let me properly I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's, it's an amazing movie. Everybody's talking about Ceylon the Spades. Uh, this is through your production company, right? NVMT? Yes, yes. Cool. And uh, for, for amazing filmmaker, how do you say her name again? Tayarisha? Tayarisha Poe. It's sold to Amazon in 2019 after uh, premiering on Sundance. It's there now. You can check it out right now. Um, and it's becoming a series, right? Yeah, doing the series. When I was much younger than you, my mother told me a story. Feel that. At the bank of a river stood a scorpion who found herself in desperate need of crossing. Below her, in the water, there was a frog. She asked the frog, will you please carry me across the river? The frog refused. Said, if I put you on my back, if I carry you across, if I trust you, you will sting me. And... The scorpion balked at this and said, if I sting you, we'll both drown. Considers this truth, acquiesces, throws her on his back, and off they went. Well, you can imagine what happened next. Halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And as the frog sinks to his death, he asks, why did you do this? Now we'll both drown. And the scorpion replied, I can't help it. It's my nature. So okay, so now that you know people know a little bit more set up on it, talk to me. Yeah, how did you meet her? Um, you said she came to you with a franchise. Yeah, I, I mean, we met because I don't remember. I mean, this is a very long time ago. This is probably 2011 mm. or something. She was in college. I was in grad school, I believe, or no, I must have been right out. But so, but it was a long time ago. And she just emailed me, I believe, and was just like asking if she needed interns on oversimplification. I was like, yeah. And I don't think we actually, she she went to Swarthmore. She was in and around Philly. I don't think we actually met in person. Like everything she did intern-wise was like remotely for that time. Mm. And we didn't meet in person until kind of like after the movie came out and all that kind of stuff. And pretty quickly after that, I feel like she sent me, the um 
the Overture, which was this website that kind of, it was like this interactive um, web experience of the story. Okay. And it was really revolutionary. And I was like, yo, what's next? I'm in, let's do it. Like, well, I don't know what you're doing, but let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And by the time, you know, we had a rapport, um, and I'm obviously like skipping for it many steps, but then she sent me the, the scripts. Um, this is a long time ago, but I remember it was two movie. It was two, it was two features. Mm-hmm. And I just remember this is really amazing. It had a really amazing monologue at the end. The, the, end, the original ending kind of had, I don't, I don't want to, she may want to <laughs> explore that at some other point, but there was just a lot of amazing monologues. And then I remember really, really struck by it how she languaged this black woman anti-hero teenager yeah. and so we just started working on it started trying to find money for it started you know getting the script together and you know just like all first features you know it takes a lifetime yeah. took a lot of people a lot of you know kiss a lot of frogs and you know, you know how it goes yep the movie's incredible and uh can't wait for the series um, I got to ask, cause I just want to know, like, do you watch trash Terrence? Like, do you watch a housewife? Do you watch cartoons? Oh yeah. What? I, I, I imagine like walking to your house and like rocks are floating and like, I was just like, soft, rock. Soft chant, <laughs> wafting in from the, from the back. But like, <laughs> do you pollute your mind with anything or escape? I guess like what's, what's escapism for you? That's probably the better question. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been on a media diet super, super clearly because, like I said before, you know, this shit has an effect. You know, it's not, it's not neutral, you know. There's a reason why you don't let watch, you don't watch, you don't let children watch extremely violent things, you know. Well, they're not supposed to, but. Yeah, I mean, like. There's there's a, a shared assumption in our culture that like an image can do harm. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. I think that what it means for for me is, you know, I have to honor um, the effect, the possible effect of anything that goes into my system through my eyes and ears. And I I think it it also just like as a practitioner, you know, it frames your instincts. It, it gives you something to react to or to emulate and both both can be both can be highly empowering and amazing or they can be really destructive you know yeah. so if you watch watching you know whatever the docu-series of the moment might be and the docu-series, of Potomac, yeah yeah the docu-series of the moment stretches out a thing that should have been eight minutes to seven <laughs> hours <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> Then you might, you know, it's gonna, it's either, it's gonna make you react in some sort of way, whether or not you want to or not. And I think it's, it's important. And that's like a banal thing, but then also just like, you know, talking about two thousand one. I think why it's connected, why it exists over time, is because there's stuff we don't know that's in the spiritual intentions of the images that is still operating and healing for people. Mm-hmm. And I think I the the word I understand it was like watching watching a, a white man have to submit to that which he created. Is like a very, <laughs> it's still kind of a revolutionary idea in a way. I know. This is why I love talking to you. I never would have thought of it that way. That's what two thousand one is. Yeah, yeah, he had to, and then have to acknowledge the, have to acknowledge a higher power that he doesn't understand that yeah. created him. It's like a very, you know, all that's going on Ugh, I love um, because 
it was intended. And so if that's intended and it persists and like, you have to think about what's intended mm-hmm. with anything that you're watching. Cause that's gonna get in you, you know, you gotta watch what goes inside you, you know? I think that's really great advice. Um, okay. We're going to take another too high for this. Ha! <laughs> what's that? So I said too high for this, man, <laughs> I, we should do a part two. Well, maybe you're not high enough. I'm not high at all, but you know, we talk said that a couple of hours. We can have a real good conversation. <laughs> but um, really quick, I get a lot of questions too about um, about when I get home, uh, the Solange visual album and um, your work on that. What was that process like? Uh, Specifically, this is one. This is a question from Quasi. Quasi Jones wants to know: Can you talk about the process for co-directing the "When I Get Home" visual album? How did you translate Solange's music and message into such amazing visuals? Um, you know, it was driven by what she's doing, what her intentions are. You know, like she, um, she. There was a few moments. You know, I'd, I'd known her. I'd known her for a while. I don't know how. Oh, we met because we were going to be in that movie that Barry was was putting together um, years ago. Um, Moonlight or no, no, it was a it's a Stevie Wonder. What was it called? Wonderland, actually, is what it's called. Uh, It never happened, obviously. But the um, but we met around then, so we know each other for a while, and just like talking back and forth, really appreciate each other's work and being both being from Texas and everything and. Um, I was just really, really impressed with what she was on from a healing perspective, healing herself perspective with her music mm-hmm. and the kind of mantra, mantraing as a technique, as a musical technique. Mm. Break that down for people. Mantra, mantratic technique, specifically um, using musical mantras for healing. A mantra, a sound, words that you're repeating you know, in order to fortify, strengthen, or dissolve mm-hmm. anything that's inside you. If you listen to just the first song on the album, you know, it's, I saw things I imagined, I saw things I imagined, I saw things I imagined, things I imagined, things I imagined, you know? And if I you say it, it just feels like you're saying the same thing over and over again, but when she's singing it, every time it comes back around, it's like it means something different, it's dissolving something different, it's affirming something different. Wow. And I think that on um, the song Dreams, it's similar as Dreams. Um, they come a long way, but not today, I believe is what she's saying, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, when she's a, she performed on Random Max, um, it was a mantra, it was just Onyx, over and over and over again. <laughs> onyx, Onyx, Onyx. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that technique is, um, it's in all songs, you know, there's a chorus in every song. You know, yeah. fucking the other niggas because I ride for my niggas. Yeah, you know that's mantra too. Exactly. It's just like you know, you think about what are you fortifying? Knuck if you buck, knuck if you buck. <laughs> 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 what are you fortifying by the, by the mantra? I think it's just or, or dissolving. What is its use? I think that's that's right. Um, all right. So Brendan Logan, come on, man, and ask us a question. There was an interesting one about black criticism, I thought. Feels like the topic du jour. Yes. Okay, so this one is from Yanni Clemens. I believe I'm saying that right. 
Um, she says on Black AF, the Netflix show, uh, they did an episode about giving open and honest criticism on Black art. Do either of you see Black Hollywood getting to a place where that open criticism of one another's work is possible anytime soon? My feeling, just reading the Zeitgeist, is it people say, people speak their mind about shit. Like people say, people at people, you know what I mean? Like whatever, you know. Yeah, they do. That's, I don't think I, I don't I don't know what um, what other destination in terms of openness. I think what the question under that question for me was really being asked, um, if I may be frank, is Please. is it is it cool for black artists, given that we all have a platform, to also be vocal public critics of each other's work, mm. which is a very different question. It's saying like, if Justin makes an episode of Dear White People Die and Fuck With for some reason, should I go on Twitter and say, <laughs> I don't like that? You know what I mean? As opposed to- Don't at me for a reason, but go ahead. As opposed to calling him or texting me like, yo, maybe this or maybe that, et cetera, what have you. And I think that's a very different, there's, there's an impulse in general with like, you know, art, artist culture to um, understand everything that's going on mm-hmm. you know, in in our lives or your lives, which I think is a very fair impulse. Um, but I don't think that anyone should expect, nor I think would it be um, helpful culturally in any way for there to be public conflict on the grounds of any given artist's work between artists. Mm. Um, I think that those conversations are the most generative between the artists themselves. Yeah. The same way that if you and your auntie have a disagreement, you don't go and go on Twitter and talk about the you know why you put raisins in potato salad or whatever. I mean, you some people do. Her. <laughs> yeah. Twitter, speaking of putting things in our bodies, are you on Twitter? Huh? Are you on Twitter? Yeah. 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 Okay. I st- I I really only I'm not do. like the most tweeting type of person though. You know, I'm not like. Yeah. I, I try to be, but I don't know. It just doesn't. I don't. Really turns over. I think Twitter is where people go and do their shadow work. I think P- Twitter is where people go and get out some of their destructive tendencies that are not allowed elsewhere. That's my opinion. <laughs> but I don't know. That could just be me. But I mean, I don't know. My follow-up question to the question is like, especially, I don't even, with Black AF, I mean, it feels like it got criticized. It feels like some people liked it, some people didn't. They said they they said it, but really, what they're asking is like, why didn't Justin get on his Twitter and say, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Listen, I I think my issue with it is um, I get very confused when I get criticized. Bad faith criticism. I don't know what to do with that. Um, you know, when someone like when someone comes when someone comes to the work and criticizes it for reasons that are personal, um, it's in bad faith. It's not giving the work the benefit of the doubt. You're not sort of looking for the artist's intention. It's just not what you expected or something that you wanted or something that you liked, and so therefore the thing is bad. Um, as an artist, like I, I think for me, I, I think we are at a place where people get dragged. That's a thing that happens. But where discussion and conversation, I don't know that we're there yet. Like where, say, an artist could respond to something and have a meaningful conversation about 
uh, a perception over something or, or talk about why they did something. I don't know that that curiosity exists um, in some of these conversations that I see, at least that I see on Twitter. What's your take on that? I don't have my finger on pulse like that, so I, I can't really speak too accurately to it because, you know, I'm the type of something happens. I'm just like, what? That happened? Oh, shit. Okay. Like, I, <laughs> I didn't even know that happened, you know, but I think what you're talking about is a little bit just, it feels consistent with the nature of human interaction online or in person, whatever, you know, Yeah. reactivity, you know, people going to react. The people going to be within the the gamut of of reactions that they can perform given whatever pain they're in, you know? And I think that that's just a fact of life. And I, my positionality to it is I, I try and choose observance and just be able to observe, see what lesson might be there in the present. I, I don't think there's really any use in judging it. Um, or feeling a way about it, you know, I think it's a state of being. And I think it is, um, it's usually when somebody is my experience when somebody is like going hard on something and it feels like, Oh, you really didn't like that. Oh, okay. It's, it was, it's, it was activating for them in ways that are more about them than the thing. Sure. You know? And I think that that can only be generative in the long run, even if it feels destructive in the short term. Right. I wish we had more time because uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to take you up on that part, too, at some point, because I feel like you and I need to watch a movie. In the house, I'm in the crib. We can do I it. Like, I feel like we need to watch a movie and talk about it in front of people. Uh, but... Before we go, I'm going to make you play a game with me. It's called it's a Don't At It's not really a game. It's just a segment. Don't at me. You can say don't at me to one of these questions, or you can answer them all. I don't think they're tough. I'm not Andy Cohen or anything. Um, but I got three questions for you. You can say don't at me to one of them. So first one, in one sentence, how would you sum up the internet? Subtle chuckle, period. <laughs> Our bludgeoned astral dream nightmare. Well, that's going to be the name of our band. So, <laughs> Brendan, write that shit down. Um, okay, if you had three films to describe humanity, Jesus, what would they be? Humanity? Yeah. Quenicatsi. <laughs> What'd you say? Quenicatsi. Okay. Um, Humanity, Yelene. Okay. Um, Jurassic Park. No? Okay. Inside <laughs> Out. Oh, what'd you say? Inside Out. Oh, oh, I like that one. Okay, I already know, I feel like I already know the answer to this question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway for everybody else. Is there anything that you have come up with that you are currently, as of 2020, May, afraid to do? Is that I've come up with that I'm afraid to do? Yeah, like any artistic endeavor, either in film or music or anywhere, that like that thought has occurred to you, but you're afraid to do it. Nah. 
<laughs> well, dude, it's a pleasure talking to you, man. It's been too long. Um, I'm sitting up in my house after this is over and for, you know, time immemorial. So anytime you want to strike up a part two, I'm down. Um, thank you so much, man, for talking to me. It was really, really fascinating. Um, and it's always a pleasure. And I know everybody who will eventually listen to the podcast when it comes out, but certainly the people with us right now um, got their lives from it. So thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for coming, everybody. All right, man. Get back to it. I will. Keep breaking that ground. Thanks for listening, y'all. Don't At Me is brought to you by producers Jason Smith from Starburns Audio, as well as Aliyah Jihad and Brendan Smith of Culture Machine. Jessica Gutierrez is our audio engineer. Judith Cargbo is our production coordinator. Theme song is by Chris Bowers, and additional music is by Dominic German. Thanks, y'all. Starburns Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.